0: We are in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 13 through 17. The word of God says, For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet, and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. And they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched with the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them, as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his bounty, beauty! Grain shall make the young men flourish, and a new wine the young women friends and family, salam Khosh Amadin. welcome brothers and sisters and all the rest who are here, um, Zechariah chapter 9, we're going to close up today, Lord willing, and I pray that it is a blessing to you, it has been to me, we are coming full circle in a passage that um, when we looked at last week, a very different Messiah described last week compared to this week. And so we are transitioning from our Lord's first advent when he came as a suffering servant riding on the back of a donkey to his glorious return as king riding on a white horse. He will mount a horse. And we see that here in the time of Zechariah. Going back to our historical picture so we don't lose context of the teaching, uh, Zechariah is preaching to a people who had heard the amazing visions, those night visions that we had, uh, um, that we looked at all the way through chapter 8, where there were promises of the king's return and promises of the future glory of Jerusalem and promises of Judah being prospered and the king being present. And we had all these promises uh, that were given by Zechariah. Then the temple was completed in about three years of those prophecies. And then, nothing. And so, as I, I mentioned last week, most... Most Bible scholars put this particular part of the prophecy 15 to 20 years later and the prophet is being called back by God to encourage the people who are saying, where is it? You know, you you told us about these days of glory. You told us about the king returning. You told us that we will not be subject to a foreign throne and yet we still are. And so this prophecy that we looked at last week with Jesus coming first as a suffering servant and now culminating in His glorious return is again to encourage them as it is to encourage us. Because I've had enough dialogues over the past two weeks with people in this church saying, "'Tis time the Lord comes." Isn't it? It would be good if He comes. We should always want Him to come, but we want Him to come on His time, not ours. We want Him to come not because things are hard, but because we love Him more than anything else. And so when you say, come, Lord Jesus, come, don't say it because things are hard. If that is your mindset, then let's go back to Zechariah chapter nine because he gives us words of encouragement to remain steadfast, to hold the line, to stay the course until that day comes. And when that day comes, by his grace and his grace, you will stand it in Christ. So let's look this morning at three things. One, how God stirs his soldiers. I don't know if you were listening to, the passage when it's being read, or even some of the songs that we were singing, there's a military tone to this whole dialogue. How God stirs his soldiers, number two, how he leads into battle, and number three, how God saves and blesses his people. How he stirs his soldiers to action, how he leads them in battle, he goes before them, he fights on behalf of them, and now how he will save and bless his people in the midst of all the noise and the chaos. Let's look at... This first point in how God stirs his soldiers. The military language of this passage, if you remember from last week, it almost is in contradiction to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. If you have your Bible out, I'm just going to read to you. Last week we're told that God will cut off the chariot of Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. And so you read that and you think... Well, good, then God's not going to be engaging in this battle and we won't have to fight and we don't have to be soldiers because I don't want to be a soldier anyway. I'm a peacemaker. And you say, well, how does this fit now with what we just read here in chapter 9, verse 13 and 14? The prophecy for today that we're reading, it has its partial fulfillment between Alexander the Great and the coming of Christ, okay? When Israel was still a theocratic state. So we see that partial fulfillment. And then we see its complete fulfillment in the eschaton at the end time when Christ comes again as we were singing in all of his father's glory and and wages this final battle, this final war against sin and death and Satan and his dominions. Okay, so we're in this really interesting time. He's not contradicting what he said in verse 10. He's adding another piece of the story. He's actually adding the end of the story and we're going to get that today. And what he does here, and I love this, and it should be a call to attention for us, pun intended, that we are soldiers. He calls us into his military to serve a king and fight on the king's behalf. We have a vital role. God will deliver us, and he will deliver us through our participation in that deliverance. He doesn't say, I'm going to take care of it all, sit back, relax, go to church, have some popcorn, and watch a movie. He says, I'm going to deliver you, and you're going to come and fight in my army. And you're going to be victorious in my battle. And in the process, you're going to give me all the glory for it. Not passive, but vital in this process. Look at verse 13. He says, For I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim its arrow. The picture is so clear, right? It's a wonderful word picture. God is the divine warrior. He takes takes Judah as the bow. He takes Ephraim as the arrow, and he's about to shoot. He's going to strike a mortal blow to his enemies. And we, his people, the bow and the arrows, we're the ones that will be fighting we're the ones that are engaged in this incredible battle that was taking place then, that took place at the time of Christ, and surely is taking place today. Even in our midst, even this very hour, that battle is raging. Look at verse 13. Through the prophet, God said, I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Now that, that almost every commentator is talking about a specific historical Event And I'm going to talk to you about it. But I want you to notice this. It's foreshadowing. It's an historical event that follows the prophecy of Zechariah. By about 400, 300 and, 340 years. And then it's foreshadowing the ultimate battle that will come when Christ comes again in glory. After the death of Alexander the Great. The Grecian Empire split up. One of the pieces was the Seleucid Empire. And it was ruled by a ruthless dictator, emperor by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes had a desire to put his boot on the throat of God's people. And so um, in 167 B.C., Israel and, and the Greeks had been in conflict ever since Alexander came to power. Much of Greek mythology and Greek pagan idolatry was making its way into Jewish religious practices. Okay? Antiochus came along and he said, I'm going to make this complete. And so he came in and he forbade the Jews from practicing their religion, from exercising their faith through the word of God, forbade it. Not only that, he then went into the temple of God in Jerusalem, built a separate pagan altar... And then in 167 A.D, started to sacrifice animals, one of which was a pig, which all of you know is not a clean animal, according to the word of God in the Old Testament, and it was the abomination of abominations. And so what happened? Uh, a man by the name of Judas Maccabeum, according to first and second Maccabees, not prophetic, not the word of God,, okay, but great history. Judas Maccabee goes and he gets a bunch of, of, of people to come and fight, and they fight, and they engage in a seven year-long war against the Seleucid Empire and Antiochus Epiphanes, and they win. They win. Jerusalem, this little insignificant, no-name people in the middle of nowhere, take on this piece of the Grecian Empire, and they are victorious. Why? Well, because God was fighting for them, and the prophecy was given here, and of course, that prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And so, when they, when they, when they were able to... Um, Uh, get rid of all of Antiochus' troops. They became sovereign again. For the first time since 586 B.C., they once again were a sovereign nation and and a sovereign people under God. And that lasted for almost 100 years until Rome came in again. But once they were able to uh, eradicate the Greeks, they came in, they established the temple worship again. They officially cleansed the temple. Um, Jonathan Maccabean became the high priest. And, and they have a day-to-day, Hanukkah, which you all know about. It's celebrated around the same time as Christmas. That celebrated the rededication of the temple to God. And so we have this amazing historical piece that came after the prophecy but foreshadowed this battle that would come when Christ makes his second return. It was a foreshadowing of the ultimate victory that God would have to fulfill the prophecy made back in Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember the prophecy made in Genesis chapter 3 about Christ? Listen. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offering and hers. He will crush your head. That's Christ crushing Satan's head. And you will strike his heel. This victory that is discussed in Genesis chapter 3. At the very beginning of Christ coming again. Foreshadowed here by the battle between the sons of Zion and the sons of Greece culminates with Christ coming and doing the very thing that we long for him to do and wait for him to do, which is to make things right, to make things right, to come and fight once and for all. And he calls us into that battle at this very moment. Paul writes to Timothy, soldier Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, listen, he says to his son Timothy, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. What does that mean? That means, whether you like it or not, or whether you know it or not, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you are a soldier in his army. (laughs) Did you know that? That you actually signed up and you enlisted... Did you know that? That you are a soldier in his army and you are called to submit to the king and live in accordance with his rules, his dictates. He's king. Now, anybody who served in the military for even a brief period of time learns the concept of chain of command and submitting to orders. If you don't, you won't last long. You are a soldier in the army of God. The king reigns. And so we are called to submit. And if we want to be considered good soldiers of Christ, that means that we will, with our hope fixed upon him by the power of the Holy Spirit, align our personal lives, our family lives, our church life, our work life, our play life with this king. He's our commander in chief. And so we say to him, what saith you, king? He says, live like this. And we say, by your grace and mercy and your power, we will submission to this king. It means that as soldiers, you fight. Soldiers are trained to fight. What will you fight for? Just about everything. Soldiers in the Army of Christ will fight for our families. We'll fight to make sure that the idolatry of money and and um, and comfort does not make its way in and choke out our families. We'll fight for our marriages. We'll fight for our covenant marriages. We'll fight against the tidal wave of divorce that's made its way into the body of Christ. We'll fight for our wives. We'll fight for our husbands. We'll fight for our brothers and sisters here in this church. I mean, if we're soldiers, this is our platoon, right? This is our air wing. And we are here to fight together side by side in the trenches. You'll fight for your brother. You'll become your brother's keeper. You will look out for your brother and pray for your brother and watch your brother. We'll fight for each other. We'll fight by encouraging one another when we're down. We'll fight by rebuking one another when we're sinning. We'll fight by teaching one another when we're ignorant. We'll fight by disciplining one another when we're unrepentant. We'll fight for one another by praying for one another fervently and daily. How well do we fight for the souls of our brothers and sisters through prayer? That is a primary weapon. The word of God in prayer. Do you pray for each other? Do you pray for me? Do you pray for my family? The battle rages daily. As soldiers, we'll fight for the sanctity of the bride of Christ. We'll fight for the purity of his body. As soldiers, we'll fight for truth, for the sake of truth. We'll fight for truth, for the sake of God who is truth. We'll fight for the poor and the powerless and all those who cannot fight for themselves. We will come alongside those in need and fight for them. We'll fight for righteousness and we'll fight for justice here in this church and in this community and in this state and in this nation. We'll fight for righteousness. We'll fight for right worship of the living God. We won't allow a pagan temple to come into the altar and sacrifice unclean things. We will fight for the right worship of the living God. And that means we will not tickle the ears of the masses. We will not encourage those involved in cultic worship to think that they are saved by a gospel that is not a gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll fight against that. And that tide, saints, is moving rapidly where people who think they know Christ do not know Christ and they profess a completely different gospel and we're not telling them for the sake of peace. What do I mean? A brother of mine sent me an article from the Christian News Network this past week to show you how tempting this temptation is to appease the masses and sacrifice the gospel. During the presidential campaign, Mitt Romney, who was running for the Republican nomination, got the Republican nomination, ran for president, is a Mormon. Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son, had a comment removed from their website during that time that identified Mormons as a cult. It was on there before. Politics comes into play. The comment is completely removed. In fact, the whole piece pertaining to Mormonism was removed, even though it was true. In an interview, Graham said, I was shocked that we have ever had that on our website. We're calling people names. If we want to win people to Christ, how can I call them names? When asked if Mr. Graham personally believes that Mormonism is a cult, his spokesperson said that he has never made a declaration on the matter one way or the other. Later, he said, we may have some disagreements and that's fine. He added, I am an evangelist. I want to reach as many people as I can. If I'm calling them names, it doesn't work. Saints' Mormonism is a cult. And if we're not going to make that statement according to the Word of God, then our evangelism will absolutely fail. Because if you've witnessed to a Mormon, they profess Christ and believe they are Christians too. We must make that distinction. To this, John MacArthur writes, listen, Mormonism is a damning religious system. It is so far from Christianity that it is more like paganism than Christianity. Evangelicalism is in a desperate situation, and that is made manifest by its inability to distinguish who is a true Christian. We have abandoned any clear understanding of what it means to be really saved, he asserted. We have no right to redefine salvation in our own terms in order to be popular or in order to be accepted. True, historic Christianity has never been confused about what it means to be a Christian. As soldiers, we'll fight for the gospel of grace. We will fight to make sure that we understand what it means to be saved and what it means not to be saved. As soldiers, we will fight for the reign of God in our hearts and minds because according to Jesus Christ in Luke 17, that's where the battle rages. Listen to what he says. The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is within you. So this battle that rages is our obedience that leads to eternal life or our disobedience that leads to eternal death. We'll fight in our hearts and minds. We'll fight to captivate our, hot, our, 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 our thoughts and make them obedient to Christ. And that means we'll fight every day through scripture reading and study and prayer and fellowship and service and one another being together. Saints, if you don't realize there's a battle going on right now, you're in grave danger because you're in the midst of it. If you realize there's a battle going on right now, but you refuse to play by the rules of the battle, to submit to the king as we are to fight this battle. If you refuse to acknowledge right life, right worship according to the word of God, then we are no different than engaging in pagan worship and slaughtering pigs on a false altar. God reveals to us through Zechariah this battle is real, that it's ongoing, and that he calls us, his soldiers, to fight in it. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. Verse 15, the Lord of hosts will protect them, his people, his soldiers, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. The imagery here is so graphic, it's poetic in nature and it's conveying this great victory that God and his people will have over all that sets itself up against The king. Everyone and everything that sets himself, herself, itself up against God, this will be their end. Devoured, tread down. Those who are victorious shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine. The blood will be spilled like that, drenched on the corner of the altars. The imagery here is so amazing because it shows us that in that end battle of which we will participate as God's soldiers, Satan, the dominions of darkness, sin, death, hell... And all those who reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the eternal King, will be destroyed. All God's enemies will be devoured and trampled underfoot. And their blood will be spilled like the blood sacrificed on the altar to God. The battle is raging. The battle will get more intense. You are a soldier. The question is, are we living as such? Are we consumed with the affairs of civilians? Are we living daily as soldiers of Jesus Christ? Are we fighting daily as He's called us to fight? You say, I want to, but I'm afraid. I mean, if we're going to be really honest, many of us do not fight this battle because we lack courage. Many of us don't fight this battle because we know that if we do, people we love, family members, friends, members of the body of Christ. If we fight this battle in Christ and we walk the narrow line of the gospel and we submit to his word, people will not like us. People may hate us. It takes great courage to fight this battle. He said, I'm afraid. I, just, I, want to be, I want to be a soldier, but I want to be in the back lines doing logistics or something. Can I drive a truck and deliver food? I mean, do I have to wield a sword? You know, if the battle's raging in Iraq, can I hang out in Kuwait behind enemy lines? God says, absolutely not. Every single one of us is on the front line, and every single one of us is called to fight. So how do you get the courage? Where do we get the oomph to fight Daily. And well, part number two, God leads us into battle. Look at verse 13 and 14 again. This is so extraordinary. God goes. He goes before us. He's in the battle. He's the one who will win the battle for us. Look at verse 13. For I have bent Judah. I have bent Judah, God saying "Is my bow. I, God, have made Ephraim its arrow. Verse 14. The Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning The Lord will sound the trumpet and the Lord will march forth and the world wins. What do you get the emphasis there? It's the Lord. I mean, what's the Lord doing? He's the one drawing the bow. He's the one firing the arrow. He's the one that's marching forth in the world when coming out of the south. It's him. He's fighting. And not only does that mean he's fighting right now for us in the midst of this battle, but we know on the cross that Christ died on that he's already won the ultimate battle. And so he's calling you into the ultimate battle because it's already victorious. It's like, you know, if you're an athlete and he calls you into a game to participate, if you're a football player, he says, Come into this game and play in this game, and by the way, we're gonna win. Well, how do you know? Because it's already taken care of and not rigged. Already taken care of. He's fighting, he has already won. And what he's saying to us, and this is where the blessing I think is missed, he's saying, Come and fight in this battle in which I am already victorious. What does that mean? That means if you fight in the battle, you will be victorious with him. What does that mean? That means we should be boldly courageous. That means we should fight in ways that our friends and family and church members would be shocked. That we'd be so steadfast and courageous in the Lord because your end is guaranteed. Your victory is already complete. Now when they heard this, the people of Zechariah's day are thinking you got to be kidding me. As they looked around, the temple, it's finished, and that's it. The walls, this is 50 years before Nehemiah. The walls are still still destroyed. There's no security. There's no peace. We're still under a foreign throne. Where is this? But had they listened and had they heard this, it would have resonated deeply because they would have thought to themselves, wait a minute. This is our God. This is the God that we've heard about from our parents and grandparents. This is the God that's been told again and again throughout the history of these people and our history as well. No doubt they would have thought, wait a minute, there was a time when we were were slaves in Egypt and God fought against Pharaoh and he destroyed, destroyed his entire army in a moment in the Red Sea. That's right. They would have said there was a time when our God appeared as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, and he protected us, and he guarded us, and he led us through the desert for 40 years. That's right. That's our God. They would have drawn upon the courage that Joshua and the people had to have had when Moses died. Because when Moses died, now they're left with second-in-command Joshua. It's kind of like the vice president saying, Really? Can we get Moses back? What did God say to Joshua? How did he encourage Joshua? as they're about to enter the promised land and engage in fierce battle for the Lord without Moses. Joshua chapter one, Moses, my servant is dead. God said, now then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give you to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Listen to this. No one will be able to stand against you all your days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Who said that? Jesus said that as well. Jesus says, I am leading. I am in this with you. I'm fighting it with you. Do you think Joshua was afraid? I think he was terrified. But God said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the earth. Victories all throughout the book of Judges. Victory in the time of David. Victory in the time of Solomon. Even in Solomon's demise. Do you remember the words given to Jeroboam, his son, when he was going to divide the kingdom and send ten tribes to the north and put up another king there? Do you remember the words? 1 Kings chapter 11. The words, the encouragement he gave to Jeroboam, who was going to go against his own father. That takes courage. God said to him, I will take the kingdom of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. If you do, listen to this. He says to Jeroboam, if you do what I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commands as David, my servant, did. God said, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Again and again throughout their history, they see God fighting on their behalf. They see a victorious God over their enemies. And so today, you say, where is God now? Is he fighting? He's fighting still. Is he fighting now at this very moment? I mean, what are we doing right now? We're doing a very dangerous thing, right? We have gathered to worship the living God the world hates. Not only have we gathered, but we're, we've gathered and we've prayed to him and we've, we've had a time to sing to him and we're proclaiming the gospel truth to him. This is a dangerous thing. And we may not think so in this country, but you do this in many other places in the world and we would not live through this day. God's fighting right now at this very moment on our behalf. And so the promise that he gave to Moses and Joshua, the promise he gave to David and Jeroboam, applies to you, and it applies to me, and it applies to this church, if what? If we keep his commands, and walk in his ways, and do what is right by keeping his statutes. That's what he said to Jeroboam. I'm your king, follow me. I'm your king, submit to me. I'm your king, exercise my teachings. And then what? I will fight for you, and you will be victorious. It doesn't say, keep my commands, walk in my ways, do what is right by my teachings, and your life will be trouble-free. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, submit to me, your king, and all your troubles and all your anxieties and all your controversies will go away. It doesn't say that. It says, fight for me, follow me, submit to me, and in the midst of the mess, because if you follow Christ, it'll be a mess, right? How many of you got that lie that if you follow Christ, all will be well? It will ultimately. You follow Christ in this life, and it's a mess to stand up for the truth, to stand up for a Savior. He says, follow me, submit to me, obey me, and then when the fight comes, because it will come, I will be victorious for you. I will fight for you. I will fight for you, my children, my flock. This is the promise that he gives to us as well. And he can give this because Jesus Christ is the only man in human history that did exactly what God said. He kept his commands perfectly. He walked in his ways perfectly. He obeyed his statutes perfectly. He's the only man in all of human history that did exactly what God said and God did not fight for him. You see, well, that's tragic. It is. The greatest tragedy in human history is that the one perfect man, God the Father did not fight for. In fact, he did the opposite. When Christ went to the cross, God forsook him. You say, well, why would he ever do that? Why would he do that to a perfect man? And you know the answer. You've heard it a hundred times. I pray you heard it a hear hundred more. Why? So that we, those who are not perfect, those who do not walk by his ways, those who do not submit to his statutes, he will fight for us. Why? Because Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we might live. Jesus Christ, the perfect man, was subject to the wrath of God, so that we, the imperfect people, can receive his grace and salvation instead. It's the most extraordinary thing. I pray you never grow tired of hearing it. I pray I never grow tired of teaching it. God the Father did not forsake his son on the cross because he didn't love his son. He forsook his, his son on the cross because of his passionate love for his church, and his desire to glorify his son in a most unique way as savior of the world. And so he did forsake him. And that means that Jesus Christ, God the Father, allowed his son, Jesus Christ, to be arrested, mocked, ridiculed, beaten, falsely accused, and crucified on the cross. In our passage, devoured and tread upon, allowing his son's precious blood to be spilled upon the four corners of that altar as a sacrifice for us so that God could see us through the battle, so that God could come alongside of us, the disobedient, the the rebellious of heart, and fight for our glorious end in him. The prophet Isaiah tells us this with great courage as well. He says, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, church, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have summoned you by name, you are mine. Don't you love hearing God say that? He says, I've summoned you by name, you're mine. You say, Say it again. <laughs> God said, I summoned you by name, your mind. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's your God if you know Jesus Christ. That's your God if you know Jesus Christ. Verse 14, the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. Now, if you've never studied Zechariah before and that's the first time you've heard that read, you'd be saying to yourself, that sounds familiar. There are things in there that sound incredibly familiar to things I actually read in the New Testament. Where? Where? Mark chapter 24, verse 30. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky above them in Zechariah. Luke seventeen twenty four. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other. Even in Paul's teaching in First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says he will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of, of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. You know what this is. I mean, verse 14 is his glorious return. It is this magnificent return. When the Bible says he's going to come in all the the glory of the Father with all the heavenly hosts and his what? His army, his soldiers. Who's that? That's us. One final battle. Last week, we saw the same king come on the back of a donkey into the city of Zion and be nailed to a tree. That's not how he's going to return. He's not going to come on a donkey. He's not going to come in humility. He's going to come in power and majesty and might. So utterly terrifying that anybody who hears this and does not believe that is not hearing this. He will come for all the world to see. They will see his arrow. They will see the lightning. They will hear the trumpets and they will see the heavenly hosts. This is the great eschatological second coming of Jesus Christ and it is grand. And it's not a story. It's not a myth. Now, if we really believe this, if we believe that this God is going to come in this fashion, that he's going to actually usher heaven to earth and there's going to be this universal judgment and that every person ever born, the living and the dead will be raised and the big and the small, the great, all that will be brought before the throne of Christ. If we believe that to be true, what is our response to that other than utter terror? Because I got to tell you, that that scares me deeply. What do we do with that? I guess the first question would be, do you believe it? Because if you don't believe it, then well, whatever, whatever. Nice story. But if you believe it, what's the response to it? Jesus tells us. You know, I love the Bible because you don't have to speculate. You know, the Bible gives you all the answers. It really does. You don't have to go, what should I do? He tells us. The Bible always asks us questions, and then it gives us the answer. It's like those open book tests you used to take from those instructors that really didn't want to teach you. And the answers are there. It's not a test. The Bible gives us the questions and the answers. Here's the answer. Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, after describing his glorious return, you say, well, what should we do, Lord? This is what he says. He says, be careful. Be careful. Interesting. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, self-indulgence, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. Listen, saints, with all your might. And that day will close in on you unexpectedly like a trap For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the earth, that's everybody, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of God. This warning is so perfect for our time, saints, because what he's saying is, you, in light of this truth, in light of this second coming, in light of Zechariah chapter 9, verses 13-17, to you must be careful, you must watch, and you must pray because it's going to come on many of us like a trap. We're not going to be ready. And how appropriate for contemporary American culture. Did you see that? Self-indulgence, we don't have a problem with that. Drunkenness, we don't have a problem with that. Anxieties of life. Doesn't that describe us today? It's here and now. Described by many from other places as a fat, dumb, happy culture. Jesus says, don't fall into that trap. Don't become complacent. Don't become lazy. Don't don't have your entire life be based upon self-indulgence, what you want, how you want it. Don't be filled with anxiety. (laughs) Oh, if there's one prayer I could have answered for us, it would be strike away the anxiety completely. Destroy the anxiety that we might walk every day in the peace of Christ. For myself, I pray that. Jesus says, Be always on the watch. What are we watching for? Him. Be always on the watch for Him. For Him. And pray. Pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Watchfulness and prayer. Watchfulness and prayer. That's the right response to this teaching. If He's going to come again and He's going to come again like this, we better be watchful and prayerful. Watchful of ourselves. Watchful of one another. Why? Because we're soldiers in the same trench. Watchful of our church. Praying. How many of you think you'll go to work tomorrow? How many of you absolutely believe you're going to work tomorrow? What if he comes tonight? You say, no work tomorrow. (laughs) That may be good. It may not be good. Will you stand before him in Christ? I asked a brother of mine this morning, this morning, yesterday, what are you gonna do when the Lord comes again? How are you gonna stand? The answer is Christ, Christ, Christ. Jesus says, be watchful and pray that you will be able to escape what is about to happen. Point number three. God saves and blesses his people from what is about to happen. You say, what's about to happen? What must we be saved from? What must be redeemed from that's about to happen? Because if I need to be saved, something is about to happen, that happening cannot be good. It is good and it's glorious, but not for sinners. It's good and it's glorious, but not for sinners. When Jesus comes again to judge all mankind, it will be a universal reckoning That means every man, woman, and child ever born throughout all of human history will stand before a perfect holy God and must give an account of his or her life. In Revelation chapter 20, we're told that the books will be opened, the book of life. If your name's in it, you'll be saved. And all the other books, which are our entire life, every word and every thought and every action, a terrifying thought, laid open before a holy God. This is your life. What do you think? This great day, where the great and the small will be brought before the throne of God, it will be a bloodbath. And I'm not using that in a hyperbolic sense. It'll be a bloodbath, because that's what the scripture says. Blood. Much blood. In that great day, according to Amos, listen, there will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through in your midst, says the Lord, And then he says, listen to this. He says, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. Who will escape this? Who And how will anyone be able to stand before the Lord and not be utterly destroyed in the darkness that comes? Verse 16. It's a verse that when Pastor Todd was reading it, I prayed it caused your heart to leap because it was speaking to you. On that day, that is the day of judgment, the great day of the Lord, the day the Lord comes again. On that day, the Lord their God will save them. As the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his head. So let's step back. How do you escape this great judgment? You must be saved. You cannot save yourself. There's nothing you can do. There's no work. There's no good deed. There's no ministry. There's no prayer. There's, you cannot save yourself. You must be saved. Are we all good on that? On that day, you must be saved. Okay, good. Who will save you? It must be God. God is the only one that can save you from this day. God is the only one. It says in verse 16, on that day, the Lord their God will save them. And we've already established that's through Christ. That's through the work of the Savior. By his work, not your work, you'll be saved if you put your faith and trust in him, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, becoming one of the flock of his people. So if we must be saved and we must be saved by God, then the compelling question here in verse 16 is at the end of the first part of the sentence, is on that day, the Lord their God will save them. The compelling question is what? Who's them? Who's he referring to? Is it everybody? Because it's everybody, then it doesn't matter. Or is them a select few? According to this, it's the pastor, the flock, right? It's his sheep. It's his sheep. Those who belong to him will be saved By God. Now, most people in this country, Christian and non Christian, believe that when they die, they will go to heaven. It's another way of saying that when they die, they will be saved. They won't won't be subject to the judgment of God. In fact, interesting polls almost 100% of those who attend church, almost 100%, that's hard to get, but almost 100% of those who attend church in this country believe that they are or will be saved. Almost 100%. It's a pretty high number. They believe that they will be spared this judgment day when God comes again to judge. But it's interesting, when you ask the follow up question, How will you be saved? that 100% response changes dramatically. Because the general response in the contemporary American church today is that people believe they'll be saved by being good. And we just said, What? You have to be saved. You have to be saved by God. But most people in the church who believe they're going to be saved will be saved because they're good enough, not by the grace of God, not by the sacrifice on the cross, but because they are good enough. And that's because sin has so permeated our consciousness in the church that we have dismissed the gospel of grace and salvation by Christ alone, and we've created a relative standard of goodness, and we measure ourselves against it. That means this, you don't, you don't engage in any major thefts, major thefts, petty thefts, okay, major thefts, right? You, you, don't, you don't go out and engage in, in, in drunkenness and, and, and adultery that hurts anybody. You don't tell a lie that puts someone in jail. You don't engage in a billion-dollar Bernard made off Ponzi scheme. And, and if, you, if you don't do those things, then you're all right. You're all right. In our thinking, we're all right, not perfect. And therefore we say to ourselves, God's not going to cast us into hell because we're not perfect. And what we've done is we've become experts at creating a standard of goodness that is all our own. It's ours. And then we adjudicate ourselves before God based upon our standard. And we do that. We say, well, when I stand before God... I will show him all the good things that I did and I didn't do that much bad and, and surely he'll let me in. And so we go before the judge and we tell the judge what? Here's the standard upon which you're supposed to judge. Doesn't work like that in our own civil system. I've never heard someone go before the judge and tell him what the law is and how he ought to judge. We go before the judge and the judge judges us based upon the standard that he's established. And by the way, he is king and by the way, he's the creator of the universe. So he has the right and the power and authority to establish the measure by which we are adjudicated. There'll be no dialogue before God on the standard he should use. There'll be no excuses. What I find amazing is that every single one of us who use this standard have a different standard. (laughs) And and so even, even in ourselves, that standard changes over time. You ever notice that? that your own standard of goodness that you use to judge yourself and others, that changes. And it usually changes when you engage in a sin or a behavior that in your mind once was not appropriate for God, but now it becomes appropriate, and we must do so because we must justify it. When I was teaching at the community college, I had students at the high school who would get good grades. Why? It was public high school. That's kind of funny. So they come up to community college, and now they're taking, some of them, a real class for the first time, and they're failing. And so what do they do? Now, some of these kids come from really good moral homes, and they did not cheat on their test. Why? Because cheating on an exam was wrong. But they're failing my economics class. And if they fail my economics class, they can't get their undergraduate degree. And if they can't get their undergraduate degree, they can't go to law school. they can't go to law school, they can't become... And you see the path. And so what do they do? They cheat. And I catch them. Horrible thing. It's a horrible thing to catch a student cheating. I bring it to my office and I sit down. I said, why would you do that? I had to. You had to. Do you think cheating's wrong? I used to, but not anymore. Why? I have to cheat. Students would say, Well, everybody's cheating. Therefore, I should too. Or if I don't cheat, I don't pass this class and I need this class to graduate. And so what, what happened? Their standard for righteousness, their standard for goodness changes. Before my very eyes, the standard is always moving. And your standard is different than my standard if the standard is in Christ. And so how can we have any encouragement from verse 16? How can we have any encouragement from standing in this day of judgment if this scale is always relative and always sliding and always moving in, in our own lives? How can we have any encouragement We can't. We can't. But you must. Verse 16 again on that day, the day of judgment, the Lord their God will save them. In order to be saved from the judgment to come, you must be saved, listen to this, by your God. By your God. That means works will not work, relative standard of goodness will not fly whatever your standard is. You know what's hard? Even, even non-believers, apart from Scripture, should be able to render this conclusion. I mean, do you remember? I'll give it to you. Mark chapter 10. Remember when the man came up to Jesus and fell at his knees before him and he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be safe in the wrath to come? What did Jesus say? He says, Why do you call me Good. No one is good except God alone. And completely destroys this man's standard of righteousness. He's saying, there's, God is good. The standard for good, my beloved, is God. Absolute holiness. Pure perfection. Without sin. That's the standard. And that means... For us, that any word you've ever uttered, just one. Any thought that you've ever had, just one. Any act that you engaged in, just one. Violated the perfect standard established by God, who is perfect. Just one. You know what that means? That we stand before God on that day of judgment, apart from Christ, in a single hour in our life. We've committed enough sins to cast us into hell for eternity, in one I'll speak for myself. In one hour, I sin enough in my mind, in my words, in my actions to justly deserve hell forever and ever. And that's an hour? I'll give you, let's do this. Let's say that you only committed one sin a day, which we know is impossible. But let's say you did just one sin a day. Let's say you lived for 80 years. That's over 29,000 sins that you bring before a holy God. Will that be your argument? God, it was only 29,000. Why are you so upset? How many people do we have to murder to go to jail in our broken judicial system? One. How many times do you have to commit armed robbery to go to jail in our broken judicial system? Once. Now, if we get that here, how much more before a holy God? What will we say? We'll have no excuse. Especially when the books are opened and that number goes from thousands to millions to billions. I remember a former student. She was a, um, a practicing conservative Jew. And uh, it was a Friday, and she was hustling about, and we usually had good dialogue about Torah and Mishnah Torah and all those things that she lived out. And I asked her, I said, what are you going to be doing before your Sabbath? Because they, were, they strictly adhere to the Sabbath, sundown on Friday, sundown on Saturday. And they would get everything ready for it. She goes, well, before the sun goes down, I'm going to go out and do some mitzvahs. You know that term mitzvah? Have you heard it before? Uh, in the Hebrew, it simply means command. Um, but for a conservative Jew, it means uh, an act of kindness or an act of charity. And so I said, well, where are you going to go do your mitzvahs? She says, well, we're going to go. You know, down here across the street from the campus and try to find people that we can help out and minister to. And I said, Why will you be doing these mitzvahs? She says, Well, you know, and of course I knew, but I wanted her to uh, tell me. I said, Will you be doing this because you love them? "Mm, Yeah. She was a very honest young lady. She goes, Well, not really. I said, Will you be doing it out of your love for God? No, not really. I said, Well, why will you do it? She says, You know. I said, Tell me. She says, Because there's a ledger, there's a scale. And she realized that on one side of the scale, there was all this sin. And in their teaching and in their their theology, they thought if they could get this scale to just balance out and go a little bit heavier, if they could get these mitzvahs, these good deeds, to outweigh their bad deeds, then maybe God would forgive them. Maybe. And so I asked her, I said, how do you know when you've done enough mitzvahs? She says, oh, you never do. You just got to keep doing them. And I said, do you have any assurance in your hope in that? She said, not at all. And I said, would you like some assurance in the hope in that? And I shared with her the gospel. Saints, we are not about mitzvahs. We're about Jesus Christ and his mitzvah on the cross. What does it come down to? It comes down to who your God is. This verse comes down to who your God is. Most Americans, between 70 and 82%, still say that God, the Christian God, is their God. They still say that. Now, on the one hand, that's good, right? Because according to this verse, look at verse 16 again. It says, on that day, the day of judgment, on that day, the Lord their God will save them. In the Hebrew, it literally says, the Lord Yahweh, their God Elohim, Elohim, will save them. In other words, it's saying the one true living God, Jehovah God will save those whose God is their God, Elohim. In other words, your God means everything. Who your God is will determine whether or not you make it through the great day of judgment. If it is the God of the Bible, if it is Jehovah, if it is Yahweh, you will be saved. If it is any other God than Jehovah, Yahweh, you will perish. You'll perish. All other gods, personal or national, have no power to save the soul. In the book of Judges, we're told this Judges chapter 10, that again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of God. You're not shocked if you read the book of Judges. That's the theme, right? They served the Baals and the Asheroths. Listen closely. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord, Yahweh, and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who, were, who that year shattered and crushed the Israelites. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites. Listen. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, we have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, listen to this reply. When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the God you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. The only God that has the power to save on the great day of judgment is Yahweh, Jehovah. And he must be your Elohim, he must be your personal saving God. And if he is not, then that day will be one as described in verse 15 with much blood being devoured and trampled upon. And that means this, saints, because all of us will say what? All of us will say, Yahweh is my God. All Christians profess that Jesus Christ is their Lord, is their Elohim. We all say it, but does that mean that he is? Does that mean that because we sing to him and because we pray to him and because we listen to a pastor preach on and on and on about him that he is indeed our God? Is that what it means? Because we go to church and we, and we give some of our time and our money and we serve, is Yahweh our Elohim or might our Elohim be something or someone else? I'll, I'll rephrase the question. Who or what is the one thing that you love most? Who or what is your ultimate desire? Who or what brings you the greatest satisfaction? The one person or power or possession in whom you have placed your identity and your trust and your faith and the satisfaction of your soul, that's your Elohim. That's your personal God. In the Western church, many of us, we're going to be real blunt, it's money. I mean, it's money. In the Western world, it's money. Money will not provide you any protection on the day of the Lord. You know, Ezekiel actually prophesied to this. On that day, he said, they will put on sackcloth and be clothed with terror. Their faces will be covered with shame and their heads will be shaved. They will throw their silver into the streets and their gold will be an unclean thing. Their silver and gold will not be able to save them in the day of the Lord's wrath. Your money will do you no good when when Christ comes again in glory. Do you know that? Is your money your Elohim? Is your money your Lord? For others, their true God is a relationship other than Christ. It's another person. For some, it's a husband. For others, it's a wife. For some, it's a child. For some, it's a grandchild. For some, it's a best friend. Where that person or people reign on that person's heart. Jesus said, Matthew 10, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That means your Elohim is not Christ you can't love your wife more than you love Christ and say that Christ is your god for still others their true god is their ultimate desire to not be subject to any other god their true elohim it's their own their own heart and their own mind they reign supreme To this, again, Christ gives us an answer in Luke 14. He says, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not give up everything he has to follow me cannot be my disciple. Anyone, saints, or anything that has reigned supreme on your heart that is not the Jehovah Yahweh God of the Bible has no power to save you on the great day of the Lord when Christ comes. You will be devoured by God, tread upon by His people, and your blood will, be, will fill up bowls and drench the altar on all four corners. But if Jesus Christ is your ultimate desire, and you can answer this sincerely. If he is your greatest hope, if Jesus Christ is the one that you long for most, and you want him to come not to pour out his rabbits, you want him to come because you can't wait to see him. If your satisfaction is in God and God alone. If you have really put your faith in Him and not your money and not your marriage and not your children, but in Him, in Yahweh Jehovah God, then when He comes, you will be able to stand in Him. You will not perish. As it says, God said in verse 15 here, the Lord of hosts will protect you. Verse 16, on that day, the Lord your God will save you as the flock of His people. You will not be destroyed, you'll be made radiant. Your blood will not be shed you will make glorious in the land of God. And this is where the prophet closes for us. This magnificent chapter closes with a promise of these blessings. Look at verse 17 and we'll close. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young woman our discouragement when we get discouraged when we get filled with anxiety usually it's preceded by a couple things one we take our eyes off god we take our gaze off the savior and we forget all the promises that he's made we we stop pursuing the lover of our soul And our gaze goes to other things like work or money or or friends or family. And we lose our focus on the Savior. But notice what Zechariah says. He says, how great is his goodness. How great is his beauty. And he's not talking just about the greatness and beauty of God, although that's worthy for eternity of gazing upon. He's talking about the beauty and greatness of what God's going to do through his people. That he's going to make us a jewel in his land. The psalmist says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. God is calling us to put our gaze back on Him, it is the greatest counsel we can receive. He's saying in the midst of the anxiety, in the midst of the self-indulgence, in the midst of all the battle, because the battle's hard, and oftentimes you feel wounded. I have been, these last few weeks, I feel like I'm just, i got the battle scars all over me, and you're fighting for righteousness and fighting for this king. You say, I'm tired. What does he say? Give up. Take a nap. No, what does he say? He says, fix your gaze on me. Look at me. Look at the promises I have made. Look what I'm doing with my people. He says, look to the Lord, Psalm 105, and his strength. God says to us, seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he has pronounced. O descendants of Abraham, his servant. O sons of Jacob, his chosen one. He is the Lord, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. And you say, amen, amen. Can I get a a one amen? No one compares to the goodness and beauty of our Lord. Nothing is equal to the majesty and glory he will do through his people, his church. Therefore, anyone or anything that captivates your heart or your gaze more than God is a terrible choice. It's a stupid choice. Because not only does it not lead to destruction rather than life, but you're gazing at something pathetic by comparison to God. My son sent me this story, which is so appropriate for us closing a man sat at a metro station in Washington, D.C. and started to play the violin. It was a cold January morning. He played six Bach pieces for about 45 minutes. During that time, since it was rush hour, it was calculated that 1,100 people went through the station, most of them on their way to work. Three minutes went by, and a middle-aged man noticed that there was a musician playing. He slowed in his, in his pace and stopped for a few seconds, and then he hurried up to meet his schedule. A minute later, the violinist received his first dollar tip. A woman threw the money in the till without stopping, continued on her way. A few minutes later, someone leaned against the wall to listen to him, but the man looked at his watch and started to walk again. Clearly, he, had, he was late for work. The one who paid the most attention was a three-year-old boy. His mother dragged him along, hurrying him, but the child stopped to look at the violinist. Finally, the mother pushed hard, and the child continued to walk, turning his head all the time. This action was repeated by several other children. All the parents, without exception, forced them to move on. In the 45 minutes the musician played, only six people stopped and stayed for a while. About 20 gave him money, but continued to walk their normal pace. He collected $32. When he finished playing, silence took over, no one noticed it, no one applauded, nor was there any recognition. No one knew this, but the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the most talented musicians in the world. He had just played one of the most intricate pieces ever written on a violin worth $3.5 million dollars. Two days before, is playing in the subway station. Joshua Bell sold out at a theater in Boston, where the seats averaged over one hundred dollars per person. They had missed a master musician playing a masterpiece on a master instrument. Why? Their gaze was off. They missed it. God is saying to His people this morning: Don't miss Me. He's saying to you and to me, put your gaze, your heart, your hope on me. Because as, as Isaiah said, in that day, men will look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. They will look not to the altars, they, they, the work of their hands, and they will have no regard for the Asherah poles or the incense and the altars and their fingers have made. Today is that day, saints, to look to your maker, to fix your hope and your gaze upon him because he said that the grain shall make the young men flourish and the new wine, the young women. He will give you blessings. Blessings of courage to continue the fight. Blessings of assurance that he's in the midst of the fight with you. Blessings of assurance that he will save you on that great day. Why? Because he is Yahweh, your Elohim. He is your God. Blessings of a brilliant future, so brilliant that even God himself compares them like jewels of a crown and that you will shine in his land. That's a glorious ending to the story. Jewels in a crown that will shine in his land. And your brilliance will bring all the glory and honor back to him. Saints, who is your Elohim? This morning, do not leave this place without knowing that answer. If it's not Yahweh God, repent and believe before that day comes. Let's pray. Father, when that day comes, and we know that it is coming soon, no one will be able to stand before you apart from Christ. We know this. Father, forgive us for creating a standard of righteousness that is not yours, for fooling ourselves in our sin, thinking that we are good enough to stand before the throne of a holy God, a thrice holy God. I pray that in light of this teaching, Lord, that we would do as your son said, we'll be watchful of ourselves, we'll be watchful of one another, and we will pray so that we won't fall into that trap. We won't be caught by surprise when you come again in glory. Father, give us the wisdom to see that gazing upon anything or anyone other than you is foolhardy. And that end is destruction. Reveal yourself to us in such a way, Lord, where we cast our gaze upon you this moment, this day, tomorrow, this week, and for the rest of our lives that we do, as the Bible said, we fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We do that by your strength and your power. And then as we leave this place, Lord, as good soldiers, we fight this fight for our souls, for our families, for this church and for this community. We fight as you've told us to fight. Bringing the gospel of grace to the lost. Encouraging our brothers and sisters in the faith. Doing a great work through you here at Camden. Bless us, Lord, I pray. In such a way that we might bring you honor and glory. For you are worthy of it all. In Christ's name, amen.